Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hi, I'm Bill and welcome to the Living Free Show on 3CR Community Radio, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial. This week we're talking about recovering from alcoholism and how support from self-help groups like Alcoholics Anonymous can make a real difference. I'd like to welcome Madison to the 3CR studios this afternoon. Hi, hey, Matt. how are you? Very well. Um, he's a member of Alcoholics Anonymous and he'll share his experience with alcoholism and how AA has helped him. Um, so probably uh, the easiest way to start is probably to talk about why you started. How, how did that all happen? Starting to drink, yeah. It was yeah. a um, momentous occasion. Uh, I was actually, my 13th birthday, taken to the pub by my father, uh, who was also what what I would have back then called a heavy drinker. Um, although it was all I ever really knew, he um, he drank, he seemed to like it, and uh, all of a sudden he was welcoming me into his life. So took me to the pub on that morning and uh, and he ordered me one drink and he ordered himself one drink, at least to start. And it was, as I usually explain, it was as if the walls never had colour before. It was as if life prior to that drink was in black and white. Yeah. And, and now they had colour. Right. So it, I've heard it um, explained that it tightens all the loose screws. You feel for once in your life like you fit in. Absolutely. Yeah. See, I... As a kid, I was I was described as outgoing, confident anyway. Um, but what alcohol did for me was, you know, it enhanced everything. I was able to actually do all the things. There was no hesitations with conversations with people. There was no, there was no hesitations with social situations. There was no hesitations with family situations or sport. I had this courage that I, I never knew before. Um, although I was only drinking once a day on a Friday after that 13th birthday with dad, it, um, I longed for those days that I could drink. Yeah. It, um, my introduction to alcohol was, it was slow. Um, and I guess I should say, so it should be at the age of 13. In fact, I probably shouldn't have been drinking. However, um, again, that was my normal. So I have, um, I've had many conversations with people about how, um, you know, I was so uneasy, so unsettled throughout the week yeah. uh, before that Friday. I'd, I'd started high school um, that year, um, my birthday being in January, and so my introduction to alcohol was cut off by things like homework um, and, and other things that I had to do as a result of being a 13-year-old kid. Um, but I went to see the psychologist at the school uh, on many occasions throughout the days and Monday through Thursday uh, in hope that I would be able to go home so that dad could pick me up um, looking for something and I didn't know exactly what I was missing. Um, there was a lot of tears as a 13-year-old boy. There was a lot of hiding in class, sitting at the back. Uh, what you explained before, that I didn't feel anymore like I'd fit in. There was a lot of changes going from primary school to high school. The workload yeah. was bigger and yeah. there were real life problems and I didn't realise that I couldn't deal with real life. Yeah. Like, Would you call yourself anxious? I, I, yeah, looking back, absolutely. Yeah. Anxious as hell, yeah. Um, but on Fridays, there was none of that anxiety. Right. Um, so you look forward to a drink? I didn't know it. 
Yeah. But I was behaving that way. Absolutely. Uh, But for the psychologist and the counsellors that I spoke to, whom thankfully didn't know I drank, they wouldn't have said that I was looking forward to a drink. What they called it was an anxious disposition. I was at, I was at, yeah, riddled with anxiety. Yeah. Um, And so having the opportunity to go home and not have to go to school or worry about going to school for two days was apparently the solution. Yep. Um, and they tried to find ways of me fitting into school, which, which really wasn't my problem. Yeah. Um, although so, it may have appeared that way. Yeah. So you might have that might have been the first start of the geographical concept. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Small geographical, so yeah. suburbs, but absolutely. Yeah. I, I had to be elsewhere. Yeah. Um, and I thought it was an outside thing. You know, yeah. if if only I'm in the comfort of my own home. If only yeah. I'm, I'll, I'm comfortable somewhere else. But really, what I wasn't was comfortable with me. Yes. Yeah. I just didn't know that language. Yeah. Yeah. So how how the progression go then? What what was the what enabled you to con- to keep on drinking? My relationship with dad, and my relationship with alcohol had this this thirst for more. The consistency that he drank uh, in my company. Um, over time, we're talking years at a time. I, I went from from a a once a week drinker at 13 to, to almost a daily drinker by 16. And wow. the progression in between there was, was based on availability. Now, naturally I couldn't buy it by myself and dad yep. being again, what I thought was a heavy drinker when he had some, I was lucky that he was happy to share. And when he wasn't, I would take, um, just a little because I didn't need that much back then. Um, but enough for me to feel that, that exhale, you know, as if I was holding my breath throughout the week. Yeah. Right. Um, you could finally relax. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and it's it, it didn't have to be forced. I didn't need to put on some, some music. I just I was able to drink, and then drinking had this a major effect on me. Yeah. So did you realise at some point that you needed to drink, that you needed to ensure there was enough available? Yes. Um, yeah, It's but again, it's funny because I didn't – that wasn't a conscious decision. It wasn't a conscious thought. It yeah. was – but it manifested in a way that you know, Dad was driving through the bottle shop um, it was on a on a weekday, a school night, um, and we were going through the bottle shop and the local drive through, and he put his head out the window and he ordered ten cans. He said, "Can I? Yeah, ten cans." And I remember turning to Dad, just him and I in the car, and saying, "Dad, that's not going to be enough." Yeah. <laughs> now again, my behaviour would suggest that perhaps I know that I'm going to need more than that, and I don't know where that came from, and I, I don't know why I didn't notice that that was the case. But again, that was normal for me, and so I went with it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, there was never, I was never privy to this idea that perhaps just have two and stop. Perhaps right. when I get that exhale, that effect that I was looking for, so I thought that now is time to, to mitigate or stop. There yeah. was just, if someone's good, more is better. Yep. So did you ever have any blackouts? Yeah, constantly. Yeah. Uh, started about the age of 16. Um, yeah. Couldn't pick when it was going to happen, and it wasn't based on um, uh, how much I consumed. Now, later on, I may have one or two drinks and then black out, yeah. but notice that the rest of the bottle and more has been bought and consumed throughout the night. Uh, yeah. But at the start, it was funny. Yeah. I got to play the the human puzzle, yeah. you know, <laughs> putting the pieces of the previous night back together and asking people. And Because back then, as a 14-year-old kid, I wasn't too adventurous. I didn't need to go too many places. Uh, and it was soon before I started isolating, but I wasn't causing too much trouble. Right, and the yeah. trouble that I was causing—social situations, uh, swear words here and there—but uh, it wasn't property damage. It wasn't uh, wasn't life changing stuff. So I didn't really think it was a problem. I just palmed it off as a drunken experience, and so did everyone else. Yeah, I actually heard a, uh, an AA speaker talk talk about 
having a blackout and he, he lived in the UK and he found himself in Spain uh-huh. and he had no idea how he'd got there. You know, he, you know, fully functioning but complete, no idea how he actually made it. And, uh, so it must be pretty scary. I did have one of those experiences when I was I was nineteen, a year before I um, before I found myself in Alcoholics Anonymous, and um, I had been pursuing this lady for for about four months, convincing her that I was to be the boyfriend, you know, the one. And she came round on a Monday night, and I mind you, I'd made a decision previous to this that I wasn't going to drink. I wasn't. Yeah. I was sick of the consequences by the age of nineteen, and it wasn't a good idea for me to drink. It was unhealthy. It was doing physical damage um and it was it was doing a lot of damage to other people um and that had been pointed out to me and so having made this decision not to drink uh, this lady came around and she said look mad we should be together um for whatever reason without any other thoughts i celebrated with a yep. drink right <laughs> and i remember having this idea that i'll just have a couple i'll just have the top off this bottle of spirits but i woke up two days later in a house filled with people that I didn't know, but they knew me. Yep. Two hours drive away from where I actually lived with no recollection of what happened the day before or the journey there or anything like that. Yeah, wow. So I know exactly yeah. what you're talking about. <laughs> scary stuff, yeah. Mm. Uh, to those of us who don't drink, it's scary stuff. Um, so did you find that um, social settings, you know, like your the things you were doing helped you to drink without being detected, like, you know, the sorts of things that you were doing as a, as a teenager? Almost the opposite, actually. Yeah. Uh, I was known throughout high school, the later years, um, to be the alcoholic. Uh, we had no idea what the definition of an alcoholic was, no idea yeah. what, what, what entails to be an alcoholic or what it means to be an alcoholic. But for me, this, this, it was a title that I wore with honour because yeah. I thought that being yeah. an alcoholic meant that I could drink more than you. And stay standing. Yep. Um, and so people knew me as that drinker. I was that person that if you invited me to a party and I actually showed up, that I would be drunk and I would stay drunk and I would drink more than anyone else. Um, there was no hiding it at all. Yep. Um, but again, because the consequences thus far weren't that bad, there was no reason that I didn't, I didn't have to look at my behavior. No one else was really questioning my behavior. That's just what it was. Yeah. So it must have been rather difficult at home then with your mum, you know, your interaction, you're obviously not functioning normally. So she must have picked up something. Mum actually has always worked long hours. Um, And those long hours entitled me to a few uh, niceties uh, where I could actually wag school, know that no one was going to be home. Uh, By the time I found a a small bottle shop that would actually sell it to me, if I wore a blazer underage, they wouldn't ask any questions. And um, I had a few luxuries because of of mum's work life. Um, But yeah, there was was a couple of occasions where I was fortunate that before the age of 17, dad would actually uh, jump in on behalf of me and cover for me. Okay, yeah. but there were definitely, there was things brewing, there was concerns there. Um, and I think that it was sheer dumb luck that I was never really questioned properly. Yeah. Yeah. Usually the way. Yeah. You, you get the benefit of the doubt when really you probably shouldn't have. And yeah, it just you just keep going. Um, so so the, the family situation at home deteriorated 
so what you know what happened next did you um, what was it like with your brothers and sisters then did you have any any issues with them were they were they detecting your change in behavior my youngest two siblings were were too young to really understand what was going on but they um Mum and Dad's uh, marriage was was deteriorating uh, and had been for five years. Yeah, um, and finally ended uh, when I was seventeen um, because Mum couldn't deal with Dad's behaviour, sober or drunk. Yeah, um, and Dad couldn't cover up the fact that he was drinking anymore. He'd run out of places to hide it. He'd run out of places to to go to drink, um, and he wasn't able to stay sober. In fact, I don't even think he would have asked himself that question to this day. No. Um, and nor did I, because it's not about the drinking for me. It's I don't have a drinking problem. No. You are my problem. Yeah, yeah. It's everyone and else. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And whether I think that consciously or not, that again, that's how I'm behaving. Yeah. That's if you were to look from the outside in, that's what it looks like. Yeah. Um, yeah, the home was was not happy. The home was, was never happy. Um, my family would, would try and never be in the same room at the same time. Um. Like the effect that alcohol had on my family was was huge. Yeah. And it should have been spotted from a mile away, but for whatever reason it wasn't. I think for some of us it was easier to act as if there wasn't a problem rather than actually consider the possibility that we, we should try and do something about a problem. Yeah. yeah na- naivety almost or yeah. forced naivety. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, no, it's, uh, I was just sort of thinking back to my my own upbringing. My dad was an alcoholic and um, he he drank from before I was born. I think he drank from when he was 14 to when he was 84 uh, and never never gave up drinking. Um, and, you know, the, the situation in the family was that we were we loved him but we hated, his, mm-hmm. hated what he did because he, when he drank, he became aggressive, he became abusive and really you, you didn't want to be there when he was like that. And, um, and often he would threaten, make make threats that he usually didn't carry out, mm. but they were threats that, you know, could quite easily, you know, they scared us. And uh, one of my jobs as a kid was to get the gun. We had a double barrel shotgun in the house to get the, to get the cartridges. If Dad got the gun, I had the cartridges. And that was, you know, we never thought of getting rid of the cartridges. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's just, you know, the crazy, the most logical thing is get rid of the gun, get rid of the cartridges, but no. Um, and so, yeah, the, the tension in the house was was palpable. And um, one of the things that I did with my mother was we'd we'd often be talking about my father's behaviour. What what can we do? You know, how can we sort of solve this? And once I remember, he crept up and looked around, saw us doing this, and I felt really deeply embarrassed mm. about that. And I think it was at that point that I realised that I needed, you know, I I, I felt really bad about doing that because it wasn't respecting him as a human being yeah. and I, I needed to do something about that. So did you come into conflict with your family? In a similar series of circumstances, yes. Yeah. Um, I See, Dad and I formed this relationship of us first mum in much the same way uh, but with different people or different family members because... Mum didn't like the way he drank, and he uh, he enabled me to drink the way that I I wanted to. Um, didn't know that I needed to, but wanted to, much the same. And um, and so I 
I almost, it was survival to side with dad over, over my mum, who, who obviously just wanted the best for, for all of us, had seen that dad's got a drinking problem um, or had suspected that dad has a drinking problem. And, and she was coming from a loving place, I'm sure, when she was suggesting that he, he eases up. Um, but naturally what happened was any rapport that, that mum and I would have as mother and son was, was depleted because to drink the way I needed to, I had to side with dad and dad was yeah. sitting there telling me that, you know, she won't let me do this. She's so controlling. Uh, and again, absolutely. We, I, I sat there and participated in the ridicule. Yeah. I sat there because, yeah. because I had to. Yeah. It's very difficult to take sides. Whose yeah. ever side you take, it's the wrong one. Well, it, yeah. it doesn't go with my morals. No. You know, I, they're, they're both my parents. Yeah. I, I want to be loved by both. And I want to love both equally. And so, Anything that's that's shy of that really hurts on the inside. That is really uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so welcome back to the Living Free Show on three CR eight fifty five kilohertz on your AM dial and three CR on your digital radio. Uh, we're talking to Madison um, about alcoholism and recovering and how AA is helping him do that. And one of the things that um, I know is coming up on a, in AA is the uh, Melbourne AA Steps Weekend, which looks at the steps of, of Alcoholics Anonymous in depth. And um, it's something that a lot of AAs attend to get a better understanding of, of the steps and to, and to share their experience with working the steps. So, um, Madison, do you want to comment on, on, the, on the steps and the importance of the steps in, in AA? Yes. Yes, I do. I just don't know where to start. Um, well, it was always suggested that I start from step one, naturally, um, and go through in sequential order. Uh, because there's a few things in there that uh, I don't see the relevance to stopping drinking. Um, and in fact, in hindsight, really don't have much to do with stopping drinking. But what they allowed me to do was, was something that I was never able to successfully do. And it's, it's really a formula for me... I don't know if I'm doing it an injustice here, but for living. It's actually another big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. The basic text refers to this as, as a design for living because I, I must have wagged that class in school. I must have just missed that class where they taught me how to, how to strive and su- su- survive in society. Um, because what I didn't realise uh, by the time I got to Alcoholics Anonymous is that although I had tried quite a few different ways to stop drinking on my own merit, to a means of of controlling my drinking, only having a couple, sticking to, to light beers rather than spirits, um, to go to the bottle shop every second day rather than every day. Um, that's a funny story, actually, yeah. because what had happened. I was able to do that for quite a while. I was able to, instead of going every day, go every second day. And it took my girlfriend at the time a couple of weeks to realize that I was just buying double as much. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the worst bit was I hadn't realized that that's what I was doing. I thought that I was genuinely doing better. But so I tried a lot of different things, different girlfriends, different jobs, high paycheck, low paycheck. Um, I'd almost exhausted every possible way of staying sober. Uh, stopping drinking was, was okay. It was difficult, uh, but I was able to do that. But any means of staying sober indefinitely was I, I couldn't think of anything worse at the time yeah yep. um so it was suggested to me that perhaps i try something that 
that is radical, that's revolutionary, as a few people in Alcoholics Anonymous refer to it as, that's something beyond anything that I would ever attempted before, you know, the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. It was, it was told to me, and it's written down in documents, that you know, this has saved millions of people's lives. Yes. These steps have helped them stay sober indefinitely for, for years, based on the fact that this is something that I can't necessarily do myself. You know, and I had to get past these ideas of I can do this myself because I really couldn't. You know, at the age of 20 being homeless, you know, having exhausted my friends that I graduated with, not having anyone that actually calls me, not having many people that would answer my calls, you know, living in my car with, with $7 life savings, you know, I'd, I really wasn't doing well at stopping drinking. No. Indefinitely. No. And I, I don't know about you, but I probably can't call that being successful at life. So... There was a few people in Alcoholics Anonymous that I knew of that had been talking about these steps, these mystical things, these these banners on the walls. Um, the first of which, admitting that I was powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. And I couldn't quite understand how one person could be completely powerless over a substance. But really, that's all my life, actually. It was My life was evidence that, that it was entirely true. Because even when I made this sane decision, even when I made this decision to stop drinking and meant it, you know, put me on a lie detector test, I would have passed. I meant that I am never going to touch the stuff again. Yeah. Yeah. But either that afternoon, the next day, or maybe the next week, I'm drinking again. You know, how does that work? But here I am thinking, well, that's not powerless. Surely I made a decision to go back to it. You know, maybe life was looking bad or maybe life was looking good. It didn't matter, but all I knew was... Or what I should have known is what my life says is I will drink under every circumstance. Powerlessness. Yeah. Yep. I can't not drink. Yeah. Mm. Yes. Um, yeah. I've heard it explained as it's a um, it's like a recipe for a cake that you don't you don't mix up the ingredients and put them in the oven before you um, you know you've got to do things in the order if you want the result if you want the cake to taste like a cake. You do it in the in the in the order in the recipe, and you get the result. And that's I think that's a really good analogy. So, when did you think that you needed to do something about your drinking? After what, what was it? What was the thing that that caused you to go? Whoa! The turning point. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, my realization came after a lot of other people's realizations. Um, you know, I, I said before that my family was affected a long time before I realized that I was was the cause of the problems in a lot of cases. Um, I lost a lot of relationships because of my drinking and thought that it was, you know, that, that they were asking too much of me. Um, it, it never once occurred to me that perhaps it was a result of my drinking or problems were occurring because of my drinking. Um, but when I realised that I needed to do something, I'd been in Alcoholics Anonymous for about eight months, um, I hadn't been sober for those eight months, but at the time I'd been sober about four, uh, and previous to that, a couple of weeks at a time, perhaps. Yeah. Um, and what had happened was I'd, I'd been separate to my girlfriend, but there was this idea that perhaps we would get back together if I attended AA, if I was able to stay sober. And um, So I was going for all the wrong reasons. So you were coerced? Yeah, yeah. I was absolutely coerced. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, mum did the old Google diagnosis and said that, in her opinion, I'm an alcoholic and, and I need to do something because they threw a bunch of fa- fancy words at me and I'd, 
she got me to low point in life. And so I'm looking at where I sat at home at the time, um, or at mum's house at the time, I, I nothing better to do. So I went. Yep. I humoured her. Um, but my introduction to AA, uh, the very first meeting was, you know, I was sitting around, yeah, there would have been 12, uh, maybe 16, 17 people maximum, uh, but all of which were at least double my age. Yep. As a 20-year-old kid, there's yep. a couple of people in, in full leathers, you know, these tough bikey guys, there's a couple of grandmas, uh, there's a married couple um, that, that found each other in Alcoholics Anonymous but have been sober plus of 10 years, and they must be lying. Because how on earth can someone stay sober for 10 years? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I can maybe do 10, 10 minutes, but that's, that's about it. And mm. I, you know, I said to quite a few people in the past that you know, I must have heard something without realizing it at that meeting. Because I, I, can't, I went away knowing, without knowing it, that I should stop drinking. You know, I had made this decision that night that it's not safe for me to drink. Yeah. You know, this is the, the first time that I've gone and attempted to do something, whether it be for the right reasons or the wrong reasons. But what I'd done previous to that night was promise others that I was going to stop drinking because okay. that would get them off my back. Yeah. Yep. Because that would allow me to actually find a better hiding spot. Or it wasn't because I wanted to stop drinking. It was because I wanted you to lay off my back. Yep. Um, but this night, I remember having this firm belief that perhaps it's a good idea for me not to drink. Yeah, I didn't. Yeah, go on. Uh, did you did you think that the people um, in the room, because they're so much older than you, that you were there too early? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I did. I remember. Um, it wasn't it wasn't my initial thought, but I remember a couple of times. I I think it was actually one of the thoughts that preceded it: a drink. Uh, having been introduced to Alcoholics Anonymous, getting sober and sitting around the rooms one night and say I've been sober two weeks, for example. Um, and I would think to myself, or on one, on one occasion, I remember thinking, I, I've done this wrong. I'm coming backwards, yeah. Yeah. I'd, I'd, surely I've got more time. You know, and based on the premise that I heard people that had more severe stories, you know, that had lost marriages, I was never married, they'd lost houses for... I had seven bucks, you know, I'm never going to have a house. Maybe when I lose or if I lose that stuff, I'll come back. But but right now, you know, I've lost a couple of friendships, lost a couple of relationships. That's surely it's, I've been too hasty with this decision to stop drinking. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, I I came into Al-Anon when I was in my early 20s and the first meeting I attended, there was about 12 women my mother's age and I thought, well, this is a bit crazy. Mm -hmm. But, you know, they suggested I try other meetings that had, you know, younger people in them um, and, and it's fine. That's the thing. You've got to find a, a group that suits, that suits you, that you feel comfortable with. Uh, so how did you find in AA? Did you, did you find people you could relate to? I did. I, I found a lot of people that I relate to, and I had. Um, I have now the the one and only home group I've ever had. This uh, the home group for me was. It was always suggested that I get a home group, um, and when I asked what that was, someone just described it to me as a meeting that I I can go to. My availability suggests that I can go to every week, um, almost without fail. I can get myself a position in that group to either get the milk, get the tea, get the coffee, you know, get some accountability um and within this group there was a few things that stood out to me um there was always the same group of people um same group of people that were happy and allegedly not drinking 
Yeah. And that didn't make sense to me. Yeah. But they were able to very clearly express to me how they got sober. Um, you know, making it a believable process rather than just telling me that you got sober and not telling me how it was. Yeah. And your life looks okay. That's right. Yeah. You're, you're okay. You've just got to relax into it. Yeah. 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 And so these, look, I was, I was guided in the right direction by, you know, the people that had what they seemed to want in life. You know, not, I was once told that, you know, look for, look for a group of people or look for a sponsor, um, if it may be, but in this case, look for a group of people that have what you want, but that it was pointed out to me later on that, you know, but what I want is to to keep drinking back at the start, you know, that's what I want. So it was more fitting for me to look for people that had what they want. Yep. You know, they felt content inside, which is something that I didn't even know if that existed anymore in life. I didn't know if it was possible to feel happiness or really what happiness was. Um, you know, so I looked for a group of people that were actually, they were fitting in with society like, yeah. as if they were normal Content. people. Yeah. Content, yeah. happy. Yeah. yeah. And I guess the other important thing is that they're wanting to help others. And I think that's the hallmark of, of AA is the, Absolutely. to help the alcoholic who still suffers, whether they've been sober 20 years or not sober at all. If somebody's still suffering, then they need support. I think that's a great a great motto, yeah. I don't, I don't know if it's um, going to be controversial of me or not to say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. It's like I haven't actually found a more helpful, more freely giving group of people than the people I found in the rooms of AA. Yeah, it's yeah. It, it's it's amazing. You know, there was this this one time that um, I got myself a sponsor, I got myself a guide, someone that was to show me how he got sober using the Twelve Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, and. Yeah explained to me his experience and suggested that I do the same thing and hope that it would work for me. Yep. Fortunately for me, it did. Um, but I remember on occasion thinking that he was ludicrous. He was crazy because you know, coming off being homeless, um, getting myself there because of my behavior when I was sober without a drink in me, um, which is another story entirely. But he, I remember raising this idea that, you know, having $7, as a total life savings, surely I need a job. Maybe I could just cut back on a couple of meetings, um, thinking that that was logical. You need a living. I'm going to need money for my car and for petrol and things like that. And he said, no. Priority one is you. Yeah. He, he said, I don't want you to look at a job. I don't want you to look at your bank account. And he said, and I was living at my grandparents at the time. And he said, you're living there. You've got food. You've got a roof. He said, I want you to go to a meeting a day and I don't want you to drive. And so I want you to find your way there and I want you to start asking for help. And so I, I didn't understand how someone could live off $7 for six months, but I did. And I didn't touch that bank account. And what happened was I got to at least a meeting a day, on yeah. many occasions two yeah. a day, and I didn't need to drive once. Yeah. People picked me up, people dropped me off. But what I had to do was get past this idea that I can do this. And what I had to actually invite into my life is this this idea that I can't do this and I need to ask people for help. And the people in Alcoholics Anonymous were more than accommodating. Yeah, more than happy to help. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 yeah I've heard it um, sort of explained. I think Bill W. used it in the big book. It was about being survivors from a shipwreck mm. in lifeboat. And so everybody's in the same position. And if you help somebody else out, you'll all be better off. Well, that's right. I think, yeah, that's a good thing. You're listening to Living Free on 3CR on digital radio and live streaming on 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. So I'm talking to Madison about AA and alcoholism. So 
once you got into AA, did you stop immediately? Did no. No. Um, which puts me in the majority, I believe. Um, even the people that I see come into Alcoholics Anonymous these days and get sober on the first attempt, they, they weird me out. Um, because I, I didn't know what alcoholism was. I knew that I'd been called an alcoholic. I knew that I wore that as a title in high school. But I didn't actually know what being an alcoholic who suffers from alcoholism was. Yeah. Yeah, the it, suffers bit's the important bit. Yeah, I, yeah. yeah the, the two components, you know, were, were later explained to me when I started going through the steps with someone who was showing me uh, how what someone else showed him um, how to get sober. And he, we explained and we read in the big book, you know, this, this idea that, you know, being powerless over alcohol was because I suffer from what they refer to as, as an allergy to alcohol, you know, where um, someone who is allergic to something may break out in hives. Um, may get a rash, may um, need an EpiPen. Uh, the manifestation for me, being allergic to alcohol, is very different. In fact, it's not something that you can necessarily see. Uh, but when when I start drinking, I have little or no control over how much I take. You know, my my allergy is a need, not not a want, but a need to drink more. And yeah. what happens is, the more that I drink, the more I feel I need to drink. Yeah. So there is no one or two for me. No. there's. No. It may seem like a good idea before I start, and I may set off with all intentions to have one or two, but once I start and I get that allergic reaction to alcohol, I need to have as much as I possibly can. Yeah. One of the most painful experiences in my life is when I sit out and I have a couple of drinks and I need more and I've run out. Yeah. I've seen death, I've seen famine, I've seen homelessness, but I can tell you what, that nothing as painful as running out once I've started drinking. Yeah. And the other thing I, I understand about um, alcoholism is, is it's one of the few allergies or diseases where the, the sufferer denies they have a have the situation, you know, the, the, the problem. S- the yeah. second component, yeah. the mental obsession. Yeah. I, whilst drinking, um, it was... It was hard for me to actually... I, I got my experience with never having one or two, I got that perhaps that was plausible. Um, but the mental obsession was this, it was really a, a confronting point for me. Um, because it was this thing that alluded to the fact that I didn't know what's best for myself. You know, it, it was this thing that even though I make this decision, this same decision to stop drinking, and I can mean it with a hundred percent sincerity, I can't keep that decision in check. I go back on that decision Yeah, because I'm, I'm obsessed with alcohol. Yeah. I I didn't realize that I had been getting jobs at bottle shops not because I wanted to work in that environment because I wanted I needed to drink on the job. Yeah. And I got a staff discount. Yeah. You know, I I was getting into relationships in life that allowed me to drink the way I wanted to because mum didn't want it in the family home. I was making decisions in life based on my drinking and I didn't even know it. I am absolutely and utterly obsessed. Yeah. I can't put anything before it. In fact, being a national swimmer, national mixed martial art competitor, I can't go to training and not get the idea of, I love training, but training whilst being drunk will be better. So yeah. I drink. Yeah. It's, it's in everything I do. It's in my every thought one way or another. I am obsessed with alcohol. So you combine the two and there's really no wriggle room. No. I'm going to convince myself to drink because I, I'm, I'm obsessed with it. And when I start drinking, I can't stop or mitigate. So really, well, all that leaves me with is just don't do it. 
but I can't keep that decision once I make it because of that obsession, you know? So what I needed was really something that isn't my own thinking, that isn't my own ideas that I don't want to drink. Oh yes, I do. I don't want to drink. Oh yes, I do. I needed something, someone to show me how to get past where I couldn't take myself. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, that thing about self-will can't overcome self-will. You can't will yourself better. No. So, yeah. Um, so what was the trigger then that got you to take AA seriously? What, what did you do or what happened that caused you to go, oh, it's got to, it's got to be better than this? Yeah. Well, it was, it was actually an experience I had with my brother right. um, at four months old, when, uh, four months old, four months sober, um, where um, I thought that I was doing really well. I hadn't been drinking. I hadn't really had a thought about drinking. I wasn't, I'd, I'd stopped going to as many meetings. I'd stopped calling the people that uh, suggested that I call them and tell them how I'm doing. Uh, so I, I got rid of the small amount of accountability I had in my life. I got, about, I got rid of the responsibilities I had in my life and I was behaving almost the same way um, and that I was when I was drinking, just sober. Dry drunk, yeah. yeah. Yeah, again, not having any life skills, not having any any ability to actually do life successfully. Not that I knew it, but I'm just running around hoping things work out for the best. Uh, and I heard that um, my younger brother and mum had been talking about how uh, they thought I was drinking again. Uh, but really, what I needed them to know is how well I was actually doing. So ironically, I stayed up late uh, the night before I confronted my brother, planning every possible way that a conversation with him would go the next morning, yep. except for the one way it did. Now, I, I was always good at convincing someone that my, my perspective was right and theirs was wrong or convincing someone to, to be on my side or, or something like that. So I really didn't think I'd have any troubles. But when I stayed up late that night and I waited up all night and I waited for him to get up and uh, get ready for work. So when he did, I, I followed him downstairs and I said to, said to my brother, you know, I'm not drinking. Uh, to which he turned around and he said, I'm sorry, I don't believe you. And naught to a hundred, I went from okay to over-aggressive and I beat him up. Yeah, well. And I was never violent. And that was something that, that caused my dad to leave or to get kicked out was his violence towards me after you know, seven year, uh, five years of a drinking career together. You know, we lived as brothers, not father and son. Uh, and he got violent with me because something didn't go his way and that was it. He was out and naturally I was out too. I, yeah. That's when I became homeless. Yeah. And so I sat in my car um, and for the first time in that four months, uh, the thought came back that if I can, still not having spent that $7, if I can just scrounge $5 together, I can buy myself a cask of wine and it'll all be okay. But for the first time, that thought, did it actually scared me. Right. And I, usually I just acted on those thoughts, this, this obsession you know, just waiting for an opportunity to get me back to a drink. Usually that was all it took, but a miracle was granted without my consent. And I had a secondary thought of, no, it won't. Yep. So I called this guy that I had been calling my sponsor or that um, I'd been telling other people was my sponsor, but really not following his suggestions. And I said, I'm absolutely stuffed. I realized then and there that whether I wanted to or not, whether I felt compelled to or not, it was only a matter of time before I picked up a drink again. Yep. It wasn't about self-will. No. I, I couldn't just not do it. And I couldn't do life either. I was causing more harm sober 
because I was conscious and able to do more damage, I guess. Yeah. But I was causing the same damage that I wanted to stop drinking to avoid. Yeah. So you realized you were the problem. Yeah. For the first the drink, time. drinking is a symptom. Yeah. Drinking is a symptom. Yeah. The drinking was, yeah, I, anyone, anyone that, that drinks too much can make mistakes. However, with me, I make those same mistakes when I'm sober because I can't do life. And so I really needed to look at how can I live successfully in society, live successfully as sick, successfully in my own skin. And that was really what Alcoholics Anonymous was to address for me. Yeah. You know, and what happens now, having gone through those steps, is that you know, drinking isn't even an option because I have no excuses in my head to get me back to a drink, provided I put these steps into my life. Yeah. Because by living successfully in society... I don't feel this compulsion to go back. I don't feel the guilt, the shame, or any of those emotional burdens or any of the emotional highs that were those excuses to drink in my mind. Yeah, and, and I guess the other one is you don't need to transfer the guilt. If you don't feel the guilt, you don't need to transfer it to others and justify your drinking because of them. Yeah. Very rarely these days, when I'm upset or when something doesn't go my way, is it actually someone else's fault? You know, that doesn't even come into my mind these days. Uh, it's, it's amazing that having gone through the 12 steps without focusing on it, little things change, such as the person that cuts me off on the way here this morning is not actually cutting me off. He's not doing it to me. In fact, what happens or what enters my mind these days that never used to is perhaps he didn't see me. Perhaps it's got nothing to do with me. Maybe he's rushing to the hospital with his wife. You know, it's, it's no longer about... Either what can I get out of this or how are you affecting me? You know, that, that, that selfishness that I was riddled with yep. isn't there as much in life. Yeah, it's always in the background. It is. It just doesn't come to the foreground. Yeah, Absolutely. It's not debilitating like it used to be. Yeah. I remember, you know, another example of this mental obsession and how it manifests was when I was 12 months sober, this attempt at sobriety, I, I was walking into the local Woolworths just to get some milk. I'd, I mean, I picked up more coffee than, than one should be able to handle when I got yeah. sober, but um, that's another problem. But I was, I was going into the shops to get milk, and I remember walking past almost every Woolworths these days as a bottle shop adjacent to, and I'm walking past. And as I'm walking past the bottle shop, I haven't even glanced at it, haven't looked at the specials, haven't done anything like that. But what my head did was really fascinating. I remember walking through, eyes straight, looking at Woolworths, and I remember thinking to myself, I wonder if anyone has noticed that I haven't even looked at the bottle shop. Yeah. Well, that's so wrong on so many <laughs> levels. You know, one, other people don't care. And two, why would they know that I usually or almost always do look at the bottle shop? You know, it's, that's yeah. my obsession with booze. And that's 12 months sober. Yeah. That's not wanting to drink, but that's just the way that my mind works. Yeah. Yeah, and part of you know the, the step four is looking at the way you think. Mm. Why do I think this way? Why does my thinking bring me in conflict with other people? Yeah, you know there are all important things. But um, yeah, it's and and getting back to sort of taking offence. One, I I read some Al-Anon literature, and um, it was the the basic premise was that you can't give offence; you can only take offence. So mm-hmm. it doesn't matter how much somebody wants to offend you. If you if you are not going to be offended, you will not be offended. Yeah. And the contrary is, is true too, or the corollary is that it doesn't matter what they say. If I want to be offended, man, am I going to be offended big time? And, um, and that's the thing is this issue that 
other people can't impact me if I don't want them to. Right. And I, that's my choice. And I've got the, I can make the decision to respond to a situation, not to react to it. Mm-hmm. The reaction is always knee-jerk and it's always I've got to do something. But the response is, well, maybe I don't have to do anything. Maybe I can just do nothing and the situation won't get worse. That's right. And my reaction these days is no longer to pick up a drink. Yeah. You know, and I'm yeah. able to sit comfortably in my own skin. Yep. You know, to feel happiness like I never knew, to feel content, to actually be able to participate in the lives of others and actually care for others rather than just caring about me. Yeah. You know, what Alcoholics Anonymous has offered me is actually a life rather than existing. Yep. That sounds good. Okay, well, I think we're coming to the end of our show. Um, just a few announcements. Uh, one is, if you, um, if you think that AA could help you, then you can phone 1300 222 222 or go online to www.aa.org.au. That's all we've got time for today. So thanks to listening to Living Free again. Uh, I'd like to say thanks to our guest, Madison, for sharing his AA recovery experience. Thank you for having me. Stay tuned now for Black Noise Radio, hosted by Black Betty and featuring Black News and Views, current affairs, music, sports, culture and the arts, all from an Aboriginal woman's perspective. See you all next week when we'll be talking with some guests from Narcotics Anonymous who will share their experience of drug addiction and how NA has helped them.